Good morning. It's good to be with you, and it's been fun this morning to run into a couple extra people that I know from random places around town. So uh, my first time at Bethany, and I'm so glad to be with you, uh, and with you in the second service. This is the better service, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. Well, hey, I've been living in Seattle for more than 10 years now, and during that time, I've been uh, following the rankings each year for where our city stands in the lineup for worst traffic and worst commute in the U.S. Uh, And as you can imagine, uh, we regularly are put within the top five uh, for worst traffic. Well, what I have learned in all of my years spent stuck on I-5 and the time spent moving only inches in hours in that downtown gridlock is that traffic is a great tester and revealer of character. Um, I don't know how honest you'll be with me this morning, but maybe uh, you, like me, how many of you know the delight that you have when your lane seems to be the one, the only one, that is open and moving. And also know the extreme frustration that hits you instantly when your lane, for no apparent reason, comes to a complete stop, and then the lane next to you, for some reason, opens up and starts moving forward. What happens to me is I'm like, oh, Now it's on. I want to win in this traffic game. And so I do this thing where I find a target that I will beat. And it is that one car or that one truck that is in the lane next to me, that one that I seem to be having a kind of back and forth with. And my goal is to break away and declare victory by pulling ahead and remaining ahead of that target because I have had all of these clever lane-changing moves that I have been able to pull off. Well, you have to understand that I moved to Seattle from New York, where driving is an aggressive sport. You are not supposed to give away an inch, and if you're someone who wants to merge, well, you better show me that you are serious. Uh, When I moved to Seattle, I had to open myself to the spiritual discipline of generously yielding to pedestrians, Uh, no matter where they cross. And doing this crazy thing where I actually let people merge in just for turning on their signal. Uh, there are all these things that I want for myself when I drive that I am so reluctant to give away to others. And it really reveals my dark side. I have this dark side, and I see it especially, you know, when I'm sitting there on I-5 and I look over and I see that cars are backed up for miles going in the opposite direction, and I am like, yes! Look at my side. I get to go 45 miles per hour. And this morning, I am celebrating taking a lot of victory laps because a few years ago, when I was headed to an event that was in Capitol Hill, 
It was this wonderful thing where the heavens opened and the favor of the Lord came upon me and this car pulls out right next to the event space and I was able to pull in. But what really does it for me is that Pastor Raul was in the car behind me also going to the same event and I realized that it was him and that I got the spot and he didn't. He had to keep circling the block several times. And I, as soon as we got together, I was like, yes. I was like, I got the spot. I got the spot. And he gave me the mic today so I could share that with you. Uh, there's something interesting about us as humans that we all really like it when things go our way. Uh, we like it when favor rests on our plans, when things open up for us to be able to move forward. But isn't it interesting how quickly we get annoyed or angry when our lane doesn't move or when it looks like others are getting ahead for no reason, when You're at the Safeway and the checkout clerk opens up uh, the spot and calls someone else over to get in line and go through. And you're like, man, I'm still stuck here in my lane behind the slowest person in the world. That's not fair. Why do we think and act as if we are so deserving? Well, this week... This is the third week in this series where uh, you're exploring the book of Jonah. And really, this is a book that is a great revealer of character. It's a story that really serves to hold a mirror up to ourselves, to notice who we are, how we view ourselves, and how we view ourselves in relation to other people. And What it is, when we're looking in that mirror, we realize that we have certain expectations when it comes to God's movement and God's love amongst people. Well, as we dive into the book of Jonah, I really think of the book of Jonah as one of those that that needs to come with a kind of warning label. Because this book is a book that is meant to push your buttons. This is a book that is meant to step on your toes. This is a book that is meant to challenge your way of thinking. So here's what I want to ask of you this morning. Are you willing to join me in looking beyond the fish and the fairy tale and allow Jonah to mess with you? Allow Jonah to surprise you and provoke you. And in a wonderful way, opening you to experiencing more of who God is and how God works in our world. That's what I want to do with us this morning. Well, on the one hand, it's interesting because Jonah is one of those uh, Bible stories that really is almost too familiar to us. It's almost uh, too overhyped. And so it's that go-to children's story. And it's the one, you know, that makes for great cartoons. It makes for uh, great coloring book activities. And it has this familiar side to it for us. But on the other hand, I saw that there was some of this data that was pulled from Bible Gateway. And that data shows that Jonah is one of the least read stories stories 
in all of the Bible. Jonah is one of the least read stories in the whole Bible, which I think that's why it can be easy for us to miss what the actual punchline is of this story. So to bring us all up to speed, Jonah is this short story, and it's broken up into four easy-to-read chapters, and today we're in chapter three. So today we get to hit this climax in the story, and it's this, this point in the story where there's a kind of surprising plot twist. And for a quick review, you're pretty familiar with the story, I'm sure, but you have this prophet, his name is Jonah, and he's told by God to go to the great city of Nineveh and call the people out for all their wrongdoing. And so famously, what we know about Jonah is that he does exactly the opposite of what God tells him to do. It's like Jonah's supposed to get on a plane in Chicago and fly to Seattle, and instead he gets on the plane and he flies to Miami. Uh, And as any kid would know who's attended a VBS for a minute or Sunday school, uh, they can fill in the next part. Jonah, he's on this boat and a storm uh, pops up and he gets hurled overboard and is swallowed by a whale. Yeah, he's swallowed by a whale or a great fish and he's in the belly of the fish. And so what we see in Jonah chapter two is that he's praying and he's singing songs from the belly of the fish and the fish vomits him out after three days and three nights. And what we have here in Jonah is it's this story and what makes it such a good story is that it has enough of these pieces to it that make it sound like a good Sunday school story. Uh, It draws you in and there's just enough of what you would expect Jonah to have in it. But then you hit chapter three and you start to take a look around and you're listening more and you start to realize, wait, you know, there's more going on in this story. Jonah has all these elements to it that are rather ridiculous and they're, they're things that are over the top. And it's not just because Jonah is swallowed by this big fish. Uh, and that, that big fish, that whale, that is where people tend to get stuck. We get stuck on that whole piece of it. But by chapter three, it's obvious that, that Jonah is a story that is a, a satire, that it's using this irony and exaggeration and humor and surprise, and it's all to expose Jonah's character and ask some hard questions. See, Jonah in the story, he's the guy that gets caught in traffic who doesn't believe in zipper merging. Uh, Jonah's the guy who shouts victory when his lane opens up, but doesn't give an inch to any other driver's. What's surprising in the story is that Jonah emerges as the anti-hero. He's not just this reluctant prophet, he is a selfish prophet. He's somebody who celebrates God's mercy and he sings when his own life is spared, but he gets angry, he gets frustrated when God changes his mind and spares the people in Nineveh. Jonah in the story shows up as this person who is incredibly inconsistent. This inconsistent prophet who has this really narrow view in what he celebrates and in what he expects from God and from people. And so even though we would expect 
what we think is going to happen is that, yeah, the one who follows God, Jonah, this guy who in chapter one reminds everybody in the story that he is the one who worships God, we expect that guy to be the hero. We expect Jonah to be the hero, but Jonah is not the hero. This is the story where the one who goes to church, the one who considers himself a good Christian, that's not the one who gets it right. The entire story of Jonah is filled with all these moments that he misses who God is and what God is about. And then there are all these moments when it seems like all the wrong people are the ones who get it right. If you look at chapter one, you you have these sailors, these sailors who are pagans, and they're the ones in the story who start to make Jonah look bad. It's the pagan sailors, they're trying to save and intervene to save Jonah's life. Uh, They're the ones in the story who are ironically hearing from God and praying to God while Jonah is asleep. And Jonah keeps trying to ignore God's call in his life. Then you fast forward, and in Jonah chapter 2, he's there and he's singing these songs, and he's singing that you shouldn't miss out on the mercy of God. Don't miss the deliverance of God. But wait, who are the ones in this story who are being more merciful? Who are the ones in the story who are being more attentive to God? Who are the ones who actually respond? Who would you call faithful in this story? I mean, here's Jonah. Remember, this is the guy who cuts somebody off in traffic and then gives the finger and t- when he turns on his blinker because he wants to merge in and the person's not letting him in. He's that guy. Who's the one missing it in this story? So by chapter 3, There are different things that get exaggerated, and the exaggeration, it gets turned up, and the satire goes next level. And Jonah, again, like we heard earlier, he hears God's call to preach to the city of Nineveh, and he goes. But if you look at the story, it's interesting because Jonah comes off as sounding rather lame. He can't quite hide the fact that he actually despises these people that he's being sent to. And when he finally does get up and go, uh, and he does what God says, all he says is this, is he says, just 40 more days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. How inspiring is that? Do you feel inspired by that message? It's your 40-day countdown to destruction, 40 days, that's it. What a wonderful, inspiring, transformational message for people to hear. Well, if you look, the response is immediate, and it's over the top. Jonah is barely started into the city when it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. I mean, the Ninevites in the story are so extra that you have to notice and notice all the things that are going on. Not only do they believe in God, they actually send out a decree saying, let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully. 
I don't know what forcefully means, but forcefully is how they are calling on God. And this is a total radical transformational response that it includes every person from every part of society. Did you catch that it said from the greatest to the least significant? Every part of society. And not only do these people believe, but it says that they stop their evil behavior and they stop their violence. And as if to really rub it in, in how complete and miraculous this all is, even the cows catch on in this story. All the people and all the animals are participating in this. Well, what's funny and interesting to me as well is that over the centuries, there are all these religious people who have tried to make Jonah sound like a hero and a good God-fearing person. And so they'll say things like, well, I mean, clearly Jonah explained to the Ninevites how to repent and how to turn to God. Really? Says who? The Bible never gives Jonah that much credit. So some, you know, they pat Jonah on the back and they say, what a good missionary he became. Reluctant in the beginning, but boy, he was obedient in the end. Look at how all those pagan people turned to God. Yay, Jonah. But is that what really happened? What we do know, what we do read in the story is that Jonah is furious that the Ninevites respond this way. And he's more upset that God decides not to destroy them. And it says, but Jonah thought this was utterly wrong and he became angry. Jonah throws a temper tantrum and he's like, well, kill me now, God. Why is Jonah so angry? One of the key clues that we have in the story is understanding that there are all these power dynamics at play, that there are all these cultural barriers and biases at play in this story. The Ninevites here are Assyrian, and these people, they are a different race and a different nation than Jonah. And you can look throughout scripture and you will see that there are psalms and prophetic words written about these people. So to Jonah, these people that he's being sent to, well, they are foreigners. They're pagans. They're idolaters. They are evil and violent. They're a real threat to the national security of Israel. They are bullies. They're imperialists. And Jonah thinks... They are undeserving. Jonah doesn't want anything to do with them. So we actually have these words right from Jonah's mouth. Jonah himself says to God, come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. The way that we see the Ninevites responding in chapter 3 just seems to rub it in for Jonah 
just how far-reaching and complete God's patience, love, and mercy would be. That here we see in the story that God would so value people that he would decide to be merciful and not destroy them. I mean, how can God even do that? The irony is that God reveals himself as merciful and loving to Jonah's people over and over again. And we see it over and over again that Jonah's people, they're the ones who in the story also get called stubborn and idolatrous and evil. God is merciful and loving to Jonah in the story. And we see that. And he spares Jonah's life even when Jonah is the one being blatantly disobedient. So is Jonah better than the Ninevites? Is he more deserving? Are the Israelites more deserving of mercy than the Assyrians? Is one person or people group superior to another? What we see here is Jonah is angry that God is being true to himself. Jonah is having this crisis of belief because he doesn't want God to be God. The punchline of the story is that God's love and mercy is not based on your goodness. That God's love and mercy is not based on your actions, your status, or any part of your story. God's love and mercy is based on who God is and the value that God places on all human beings. In this story, God is the one who sees the Ninevites, God sees their humanity. He sees their value as people and the possibility for the power of mercy to transform and heal them. In God's eyes, no human being is more or less valuable than any other human being. God's loving mercy, remember it says, reaches from the greatest to the least significant among them. And that means that at every strata of society, every person, every people group, every race, every ethnicity, every story, why does this happen? Because this is who God is. And sometimes one of the hardest things, the hardest messages for us to swallow, even those of us who identify as Christ followers, those of us who are churchgoers, uh, is that God's love centered in Jesus has no circumference. That God's love knows no limits and creates no hierarchies. Which means that there is no one in this room who is disqualified or unworthy of experiencing God's love and mercy. And there is no one that you will encounter walking up and down Aurora Avenue who is disqualified or unworthy from experiencing God's love and mercy. 
And there is no one farther left than you or farther right than you who is unworthy or disqualified from receiving God's love and mercy. There is no one with any kind of story who is disqualified or unworthy from experiencing God's love and mercy. What God's love and mercy does is it crosses boundaries and it breaks down walls. And God's love and mercy, it reaches even those people. Whoever those people are for you. If you're a human being in this room, I know the lights are bright, but I think I can look around. Most of you look human. I would bet that there are certain people who get under your skin. I would bet that there are people that you don't understand, people that you avoid, people you think should get it together or change or you hope would just stay away. People you find different or disgusting. People who don't fit into your idea of who might change or who might respond or who is deserving enough of love and grace. This morning, I want to invite you to notice where is the Jonah story pushing you? Where is the Jonah story challenging you? Who are the people that you see as undeserving? Where are you the one who is quick to get angry, impatient, or judgmental? I mean, sometimes it can be a really overt thing. Sometimes it can be really subtle. And sometimes you know why, and sometimes you can't quite put your finger on it. And even me on Friday, I was laughing because I'm like, of course, as the preacher of this, and here I am at the gym, and this person is driving me nuts. Hello, Allison. Are you going to take notice of that? What's going on in you right now? Here's another way to ask it. Who is your us and who is your them? Who do you see as your people and who do you see as those people? Who do you see as your people and who do you see as those people? Where have you been called to be an agent of grace and yet you keep fleeing in the opposite direction? What about your own actions, your own withdrawing or resisting that person or those people shows you where you are resisting the work of God's grace? Are you letting God be God? Or are you angry that God isn't fitting into who and how you think God ought to show up in the world? Now, these are all incredibly difficult questions to answer. But the point of the stories like these, stories like Jonah and parables, the point is to ask the hard questions and kind of let them simmer. Let those questions mess with you a bit. 
Let those questions cause you to notice what's getting stirred up. You'll see next week that that Jonah doesn't quite resolve them either. It's a kind of cliffhanger story designed to leave you hanging with these questions. But I also want to encourage you with this this morning. And I'm sure that you are so aware, it doesn't take much to look around and realize that our world and our neighbors are desperate for people who will face the hard questions. Questions like these. People who will address their own biases and brokenness. People who will see the dignity and value of all human beings everywhere and who will dare to believe in the power of God's love and mercy to heal. That mercy is a mystery. That love is so powerful. And people are so hungry for those who would ask the tough questions. So this morning, as you're here in this place, would you not only receive God's love and mercy for yourself, God's healing that he offers you, whatever your story is, God loves you and there is something there for you. Would you not only receive that, but would you also generously share that love and that mercy and that grace with every human being and every animal on the planet? Because that is your invitation. That is your calling. And that is our challenge together Would you pray with me this morning as Allie comes back up? Our loving, compassionate, merciful God, for each person in the room, I pray that each person would experience your love and your mercy. That whatever story, whatever situation, whatever difficulty, whatever brokenness we bring into this space, God, I pray you would meet each and every person and pour out your love. And God, I also pray that you would push us into this week, that we would see those people and recognize who those people are for each one of us. Would you challenge us, encourage us, inspire us, give us the strength that we need to be a people who see the mystery and power of your love and mercy, even to reach to those people. God, we need your Holy Spirit and your help to do it. So we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.